Rock and roll. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Rebet. Welcome to Rebet Live. Uh, we're, we're amongst royalty today. We have our first sir that has, that has made made the show. So Peter Gluckman, how are you, mate? Fine, thanks. Do you, how does it work when you, do you just flex on dudes when you meet them and you're just like, hello, my name is Sir Peter. <laughs> no, I don't. I just say, call me Peter. Nah, it's so dope. I'd just be just dropping sirs everywhere. I'm um, just going to give a quick little bit of context. You're, um, uh, you've got lots of, I'm not going to lie, man. I don't even know what a lot of these letters mean after you. Know. I know the ONZ and then the KNZM, FRS, FMEDSI, FRSNZ. Dude, you've got like all the all the add-ons, life add-ons. You've just like clocked all this shit. It's fucking great. I love it. Um, New Zealand scientist originally trained as a pediatrician has served as the inaugural chief science advisor to New Zealand prime minister from 2009 to 2018. He's a founding member and the current chair of the international network of government science advice and the president elect of the international science council. Welcome mate. Jingle bells. You must have a brain, big brain. Jeez. Maybe die, but never mind. (laughs) Let's jump right into it. As a scientist that knows a lot about a lot, what has been the biggest frustrating point for you as a scientist over this last month or two from a, um, a mainstream perspective? What's, what's been the biggest frustration you've had to start? I think the frustration has been that a number of countries took a very slow, slow to really react in a way that you needed to with an emerging pandemic with a virus we hadn't seen before. I think the countries like that reacted well have handled handled this and kept it reasonably under control. But there's been a lot of countries that did not, did not move quickly enough or, or strongly enough. And that's been frustrating because the science of pandemics has been predictable, it's understandable, and yet people were slow to react. In a sense, they were, they probably didn't quite believe the scientists saying this is actually mm. a big one. Yeah. And especially, it's, I came from a snowboard world, and in snowboarding, you'd, you know, when you'd be out and about in the backcountry, you'd look at the different slopes and faces and you'd see that had been hit by the sun or not. And, and if you're going to hike, and you'd see kind of rookie Muppets just hiking up the wrong aspect. You go, guys, that's going to avalanche. That's going to slide. That's going to slide. Guys, it's going to slide. And they just go on and it slides. And you're sitting there like, team, you saw every single thing you needed to know. Wind going this way, sun coming this way, weight going this way, like absolutely everything. That must be so infuriating, and it's actually unfortunate because I'm imagining the the reality is that's now cost a lot of people lives because they didn't listen to the data and the science. Right? That's the that's the bit that must just be overwhelmingly frustrating. The difficulty is, you see, that that when a new virus hits, people assume that we can get on top of it easily, like countries did really with SARS, with MERS, with bird flu, swine flu, etc. But it was inevitable, and of course, we don't know how big an issue is going to be until it really confronts us. And therefore, a precautionary approach was needed. But a precautionary approach it comes up a lot of in, against a lot of interests, uh, business interests, uh, political interests. And therefore, countries that move too slowly have now got a much bigger disaster ahead of them. Now, even countries like New Zealand that move quickly have now got to pay the price in terms of social and economic costs. But at least we've kept from having a severe uh, 
direct health impact of the virus. Yeah, the timing of when to pull the trigger with it, eh? Like I know, I kept watching the um, the graphs of, of from day one with the actions of, of what they've done and how they've done it. And you look at all these things and then I'm imagining that the initial tension when they first went into lockdown was, is this too soon? Is this too late? Yada, yada, yada. But I'm imagining from a political side, obviously you've had to do that from a um, government perspective to, with uh, being an advisor with the PM would be, if you go too soon, you probably piss people off. They feel like they're in trap. You go too late, then you're an asshole because a bunch of people die, right? How, what are the actual, I mean, is that the, that's the the actual question that gets had at, at at that level, right? It's literally like, at what point do they hate us for forcing them in their house, stuff you get inside, or oh no, it's all sweet, you have your freedom, and all of a sudden a bunch of people unnecessarily die when the data was there. How do they navigate that at a high level? Well, that's the hard bit of being a prime minister or being a government minister. It's also a hard bit of being a science advisor because you know you get it wrong, you're advising the government badly, and if you think about this particular pandemic, you don't have a lot to go on from the past. The last major, major pandemic was in 1918-1919, although one's been predicted at this scale for a long time. We've also had to rely a lot. And, and so there are the tensions between what do we know, what do we think we know, what don't we know, what can't we know, and yet decisions still have to be made. And that involves the epidemiology, it involves the virology, it involves behavioural science, and it obviously involves political and economic calculation. And all of that comes together in a way that is, it's hard to explain, but somehow a consensus between these different points has to happen. And ultimately the Prime Minister and and the team around the Prime Minister have to make the call. And, you know, they're damned if they get it wrong and they're damned if yep. they get it right, depending on which way they go. Uh, and, I mean, we're here dealing with an impossible equation. Human lives e in, due to the virus, economic uh, costs, social costs, et cetera, et cetera. These are not things that you can put into an equation and balance. They come down to judgment. Heavy lies the crown. Just like you on your snowboard, judging yeah. whether that 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 slope is a safe one to go down. But the the it's the the difference with that though is you've seen it happen a, not a million times before. You've seen it happen a bunch before, so you know how to react to it. In a situation like this, the world hasn't seen an entire stop at this level to, at this magnitude, right? So I'm sure there's a lot of hesitation of do they believe the science because it's never happened before. It doesn't mean it won't happen, right? You've got it right. I mean, in a sense, we became overconfident because, in one sense because SARS was dealt with very quickly, MERS was dealt with very quickly, Ebola, while very tragic, the tragedy was where it was in the world. In fact, once the once the army of doctors and health workers got together and dealt with the contextual issues on the ground of poor infrastructure, it was actually dealt with quite well. The issue here was that people assumed that pandemics could be easily dealt with. This was a pandemic which the scientists knew would eventually happen, would happen one day, high probability of happening. But many people thought thought that because of the past, we would handle any new epidemic pandemic easily. 
not realizing that at the end of the day, the only way to handle an infection of this type is lockdown, isolation, track contact tracing, and, 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 and isolation of those who have the infection. We have no other basic mechanism to deal with a new virus at the present time. And now we're in a spot, obviously, it's new and they're talking about vaccines. You know, Bill Gates was saying there's a reality of, of, you know, at least 18 months away. And then you think about, you know, what that means for, for tra travel and tourism and all the rest of it. But also simultaneously, if there's these, and this is what I was talking about with Elizabeth before on the show, was if the second wave start hitting, then surely that's going to mean that they're going to be forced back into lockdown. Then there's almost going to be anarchy and riot in many, in many places because they can't stay at home and do nothing for a year. So what's going to happen, right? Like, how do you navigate the the risk of, um, you know, who gets to do what, when, what that means? You, you, you're really Russian rouletting a whole bunch of this unnecessarily in, in many instant circumstances, right? But well, there's going to be economic pressures. That's why New Zealand's in a privileged position. Hmm. We have got the, incident, the, the, the viral numbers down to very low load. We think there's very low community spread. We should be able to handle the inevitable outcomes, uh, inevitable occasional uh, uh, emergence of disease within the normal healthcare system, provided we have rapid tr tracking, tracing, and isolation in place, which we will have by the time we come out of lockdown. Other countries are not so lucky, and now they're seeing a resurgence of, of disease, uh, even when they thought, but they, but it was the completeness of our lockdown early in the event that got us to this position. Plus our geographical position in the world, which make it made us lucky, uh, in some ways. I think that the issues that you raised, I think the population will not handle yo-yoing very well. We and I hope that we don't have to get to it in New Zealand, but I think other countries will face this issue. Uh, for a variety of reasons. The, the one hope that people have is that this virus, like many other viruses, has somewhat of a seasonal behaviour. So, and we don't know that, which means that in the Northern Hemisphere, it may be less severe as the summer uh, proceeds. Um, but uh, of course, we're approaching winter in New Zealand at the same time. So there's lots of things we don't mm. know. But I think your point about the social, psychological, and economic costs all drifting on over one, two, three years uh, with an uncertain path for this virus in terms of recurrence, which will leave people being fearful and concerned, is actually uh, um, uh, the reality. I mean, I'm very worried, and, uh, and my group is working a lot. We have a meeting uh, tomorrow to think about some of the mental health issues that are going to emerge. And if you think about it, there are now a new group of people who are very vulnerable. They're people who thought had jobs, they had careers, they were earning, and now their jobs have disappeared, their earnings have disappeared. They don't, in a funny way, they've not, and they've never anticipated being in that position. Think if you're an airline pilot, you might've thought you had a job for 20 or 30 years, high paying job, you might be well leveraged. Now you're out of a job. And you may, and, and, and of course, that happens to lots of small business people, lots of people in other jobs. So there's a real issue here 
of how the government create a positive mindset in a very difficult time. You know, we know in the acute phase of an emergency, there's a bit of a blitz mentality. Everybody comes together and, and, is, and, and works for a common good. And I think New Zealand has shown that very much in the last few weeks. But over time, that will drift. There will be other issues emerge. There'll be sense of winners, sense of losers, people who don't have hope, people who, are, who think that the thing's got a political dimension to it, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be tough. Uh, and, and we've got to think of positive ways. What are new things that we can do with a large number of people that want to be employed, want to do something constructive? Uh, for example, is this a chance for us to think about New Zealand's environment? All the conservation things that have been talked about in the past. Are there opportunities there? We've just got to think differently about where the opportunities lie. Now, that's not for me to judge. That's for all of us to work together on and say, yes, shit is out there. Yes, a lot of people are in very unfortunate times and are going to have very unfortunate times for a long time. But out of crisis comes opportunity, new ways of thinking. And while I don't want to be hyperbolic about it, and why I don't want to deny the horrible times that many people are now going to go through, we've got to start thinking about how do we make the best of the situation we've got into. Can we find new ways of doing things mm. that make for a more cohesive society, more sustainable society, a more equitable society? Yeah, hit on a few of those interesting ones. A, a main thing I was just going back to is you're saying, you know, about when there was the comms have been very clear and almost like when when there's so much clarity in communication, it almost brings calm to the masses because they know what's going to happen at this thing and then they can see it when there's that kind of unknown and uncertainty that plants seeds of doubt, which causes a lot more, you know, mental anxiety and, and frustration and pressure and stress and all the rest of it so even just with that i think the maybe we could jump straight there how do you think the 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 comms have gone from government throughout this whole thing do you, like it it feels like they've smashed it and done insanely well but do you think um yeah how do you think they've done in terms of comms to new zealand and the world well i think everybody knows that we have probably the outstanding political commentator of the decade in our Prime Minister, and she has done a very good job in communication. And I think that while there have been one or two areas where the Ministry of Health could have been a bit more transparent, I think uh, Ashley Bloomfield's done a very good job. But also add to that one other aspect, and that is the Epidemic Response Committee. Three days a week, the government a, a committee headed by the leader of the opposition asking questions of the uh, of the policy makers, the politicians and the and the officials, getting input from experts like Sir David Skegg, holding the government to account in a way that is not um, political but is dealing with the issues of the and I think to be fair, it's not been a political or partisan committee. I mean, they're politicians, but they've largely put that aside. And I think we will look back and say that's been one of the constitutional innovations of all time, that that has shown that you can, even in a time when emergency powers have had to be taken by government, you can still have 
a level of transparency and confidence building by having the opposition holding the government to account in a constructive way that you combine that with the outstanding skills of the Prime Minister, that you've had a great trust in New Zealand as a result of that. And I think surveys show that New Zealanders are more trusting of their government and the institutions of government. I'm not talking here in a partisan sense of one party or one leader versus the net, than many. And I think that transparency, truthfulness are key to trust. And trust is key to the social cohesion, which is, is going to be essential for this for this little country to do well over the next three to five years. Yeah, it's a fucking good, good point. You see, the it has been quite smooth sailing politically. I don't I don't know politics very well at all. I've got friends, I guess, on on both sides, but I it's been quite refreshing to have a, a breather from. Um, you know, the kids fighting in the playground for the last, I guess, month and a little bit. And then I don't know if you saw, but I got tagged into, um, did you see Simon Bridges' Facebook post he did yesterday? I've heard about it. And of course, <laughs> that's the problem. That, that inevitably, uh, oh. as we head towards a, 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 an election, which has probably got slightly unfortunate timing, uh, we, we have it's going to be inevitable that political point scoring is going to yeah. occur. And that what? is going to, that's going to undermine the social cohesiveness we need to get through the next few months. I mean, our mental well-being is going to be so important collectively. I mean, I've been really impressed talking to some of the iwi uh, leaders around Auckland, how much they've done to using their collective skills to look after the vulnerable people in their community over the last few weeks. They've got a, a, a wire is just remarkable. And I just think that um, we Pākehā have got to learn also how to maintain our resilience and our collective spirits in a time which is going to be tough. And unfortunately, and on one hand, political contestation is healthy. That's why we live. That's why we celebrate one of the best democracies in the world that does not move to, to authoritarianism or to highly polarized society. But a political campaign is inevitable, and we've got to allow that there'll be a contestation of ideas and views uh, over time. It is inevitable that in this crisis, as in any other crisis, that there'll be stories of people who've done well and done badly. Uh, media will move more to the bad news stories than the good news stories, because that tends to sell. It's inevitable that there'll be inquiries of one sort into the other, already into whether we were well prepared or not prepared, etc., etc. And all of that fuels the cut, and while that's healthy and has to happen in a democracy. At the same time, it makes it more discomforting for the for the people who are trying to get on with their lives. Yeah, because I think why it was quite interesting is he was the first to publicly take a shot after it had been silent for for a month, and he got pummeled, mate. Like this is because he talked about mental health, and then I just got to read out this. Uh, this the, the first comment on from from 
jazz them. Just a reminder that the National Party that can't me cut mental health funding put it at the bottom of the priority list and refused to acknowledge it as a serious issue. So please don't use our country's serious vulnerability of mental health as a political standpoint as to why you should be in. Okay, cool. Thanks. And <laughs> just got owned, man. <laughs> like, and then I just kind of stopped. You know that everyone's all of a sudden going to go back to like, holy shit, okay, is this the time for politics or is this the time for the, the people and health? And it kind of brings up that, that balance of, you know, you have – You've got, you know, culture, community, you've got commerce, politics, you've got the the health and it, it almost this, 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 this foot of fight of, you know, health versus wealth, right? How, how do you, how do you, how does a prime minister, I don't want to get into the prime minister's mind, but if you are the prime minister, how do they navigate or balance the tension between the health of the people or the health of an economy? How, what is that actually, what are those chats actually well, like? That's actually the basis to democratic uh, democratic debate. I mean, not that particular axis in particular, but you have, you know, if you think about why we have different political parties and difficult, different political alliances, it's because we weigh these kinds of things, the environment, uh, egalitarianism, uh, self-determination in the sense of one's autonomy and ability to make choices for oneself uh, differently. And that's, we have different worldviews. We develop them in different ways. Uh, we sustain them and they underlie why there is a healthy diversity of views in a population. Ultimately, the prime minister or the government of the day has to weigh the views of the public, the views they have of themselves and uh, uh, their own ideology with the evidence that's presented to them in a particular context. Now, they will interpret that evidence through their lenses, which come from their, their worldviews, in making their decisions. Now, the probability is in an emergency, the decisions made are very similar, independent of, a, of political party, at least in New Zealand. Because I think everybody would have said a lockdown, and everybody did agree a lockdown was the right thing to do and to do it early. There wasn't a lot of disagreement about that. What is going on now is just a little bit of a debate over whether the lockdown was optimally used or not, and, and now we start to enter into the, 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 the reality that the lockdown has been successful and everybody's impatient to get back to uh, normal, a life which will of the new normal because it will for many people not like be like the old normal and that's that that's that's a healthy debate because again in a democracy this is an opportunity to reflect on have we got it right can we do better next time and more importantly what are we going to do over the next two years next five years next ten years mm. what kind of reset does this lead to if any, and I suspect it leads to quite a big reset. Clearly, tourism is going to be very different than ever before. Clearly, a lot of ways in which business operates have learnt new ways to operate in this environment. Is this a chance? What do we do with our, our, one of our two biggest industries now in serious trouble? Uh, what do we do with our connection to the world, at least physically, being changed for many months, if not longer, how do we actually adjust New Zealand to take advantage of it? But more importantly, how do we make sure that the New Zealanders who have, who are most vulnerable in this situation 
don't stand a vulnerable position for a long time. Now, there will be political debate around that, and, and but it's a debate that should be more than partisan. It should actually be a good constructive discussion in society. And that's one of the things I'm trying to lead at the moment. Hmm. To that point, what do you think the biggest opportunity for New Zealand is to the world out of this? Obviously, you've got tourism currently um, you know, decimated, uh, trade is at a, at a pause, hospitality is going to slowly come back after the, 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 the next, but there's going to be still chaos there. But New Zealand out to the world, where do you think the biggest opportunity for us as a people is commercially to help bring some dollars back in the door for, for the nation? Well, clearly, the food agricultural sector is still our strongest, is a very strong point. And how do we can we further develop that up the value chain while reducing our our carbon and environmental footprint? Our economy is going to rely on agriculture in the into the intermediate to long future. Obviously, on the side, there's been a lot of innovation in New Zealand, and you know, you should look at somebody like Rocket Lab to see that out of nothing we can be quite uh, rapid innovators, and that's an advantage. One of the things that I think might be there, and this might be being a little bit uh, hyperbolic, but can we take advantage of the fact that we are now the safest place on the planet, We, uh, in terms of both the virus and uh, our, our society? Look how we responded last year to the, to the horrible attack in Christchurch that we are environmentally conscious, although we've obviously got a long way to go to be where we would aspire to be, that we're socially conscious, although, again, we've got ways to go to address some of the inequities within our society. Could we use that as a magnet to say to, to companies and investors around the world, you want to put critical infrastructure or you want to put critical... Um, uh, 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 people into a, the safest place in the world, which has high uh, social uh, values, legally robust, uh, no corruption, is New Zealand the place to put some of your most valuable assets? And I, I think it's that may be dreaming, but I think it's a position that could be taken. Beyond that, we're back into how do we develop an agricultural sector? How do we promote uh, more innovation in the digital space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? But if you, but, and, and thirdly, I think, is this the time when we can move faster on environmental goals? Think about higher value, lower volume tourism, et cetera, et cetera. These are the kinds of discussions that are needed now. But let's try and understand what our competitive advantage might be. And it might be that we're the safest place on earth. One of the, it's a really good point because I've been thinking about where does the, what's the magnets of attraction to New Zealand as a, as a nation going out and brand New Zealand of, of safe, green, good, whatever. On top of that, it's almost, we would be technically, arguably exactly to your point, is open for business for for the for the world right and i'm thinking of all of the if we can you know be good boys and girls and stay inside and do our thing and i've talked about it a little bit before if we can get to that spot and all of a sudden people start moving and commerce starts potentially operating the the potential global wave of opportunity for international companies that would want to set up virtual offices 
in New Zealand yep. would be ridiculously massive because there'll be thousands upon thousands that would want to get set up. On top of that, that would also be, you could have a redeployment of different skill sets that exist for um, human capability in New Zealand to be able to run work those jobs so there could be a massive increase of a global magnet for businesses to international businesses to set up shop in New Zealand a hiring pool for locally based Kiwis to be working for potentially international companies but set up here and to be able to make an effect there do you feel that that is a viable option commercially that makes sense at an international level if we were to you know to, to potentially do that and, and a, could that be a, a huge saver of basically being a, a safe space for international brands to get back into business right i think i think in theory yes in practice i think there's lots of things that will have to go on alongside that to make it work but I, and it will mean probably putting some ideology aside around the rules around foreign direct investment etc 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 but i think if we are prepared to just do a bit of a reset in some of those areas, we could be very attractive to some very attractive opportunities to be based in New Zealand. I mean, as we've, as we're now much better connected to the world digitally, and we've shown that we can operate well without physical connectivity being very, very um, efficient as we are at the present time, I think that we can, we can build off this opportunity in a unique way. But there'll be quite a lot of resetting needed. And in some cases, they may be contentious. Hmm. Yeah, the, to your point where you're talking about the, the most important assets to go here is safety. I almost get this, um, this vibe of, you know, if you rewind back, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, entrepreneurs were seen as this kind of like crazy off the side. And then New Zealand, you know, in the middle of nowhere, uh, small, not big numbers, doesn't really, you know, bat to the rest of the world in terms of scale. And then funny enough, the liabilities almost turn to the biggest asset, right? Because then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, we are safe because we're far away from everyone. Yes, we've got internet that's just as fast as flipping anywhere that can connect the world. Cool. And we can control it and logistically with where we're at. I almost wonder, you know, I, I think about, I've been talking about you know, pre-COVID PC, after COVID AC, this new world for the new New Zealand AC, that our biggest liability that many thought is actually the biggest strength, which could not only save us, but help New Zealand thrive. Right? And we've got one other strength too, which is worth thinking about in that regard. We can move quickly when we want to. Mm. And I just use the example of Peter Beck's and, and Rocket Lab. You think about how quickly all the things that had to be done to make that an effective business from New Zealand, the space treaty, the space law, uh, all the agreements with the Americans, uh, Every, all the things that there were a lot of technical and administrative things that had to be done, and it was done remarkably quickly. Uh, mm. Setting up a new space agency, getting all that work done, that is a function of the fact that we're a small country with 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 well connected with a lot of connectivity amongst the key actors, and when once a consensus is re reached to do something, we do it well fast and uh, with an integrity underneath it all and that yeah. is an advantage for international entrepreneurs to think about new zealand but international speed. entrepreneurs will want something in return speed and cred right that's the that's the thing if you've got mm. capability to, to to execute 
speed to be able to do it. We had um, uh, Victoria Crone, CEO of Callahan, who you'd probably know, she was on the show uh, a few weeks ago. And she said, she was like, I am so surprised at how fast things can happen when the people actually want wanted to, you know? And, and what we were talking about is almost this has become a vehicle now of, well, if we've did this whole thing, well, why can't we dot, dot, dot? Why shouldn't we dot, dot, dot? Because if we've radically transformed from an offline to an online business, if we've all gone to the cloud, we're on these new future digital train tracks of, 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 of commerce, why can't we dot, 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 try this thing? So I think it's going to actually challenge a lot of um, the, 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 the business as usual is going to be business as usual 2.0, you know, because I think we've, we've passed that point now. I agree with you. I agree with you. I still just worry that too many people will, will think we can go back to BC now and we can't. That. I mean, yeah. and that, yeah. and of course, a lot of the political framing of both parties will still be in BC mode. So, I mean, I think how we, how we get, and how we get into this new transition and that's where I think the private sector, the NGO sector, the academic sector is taking quite a lot of lead. I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting discussions going on. I'm part of some. There are many others going on about what shape of New Zealand could emerge rather quickly in the near future. Great segue. What do you think the new New Zealand could look like if you sprinkled the the Gluckman finger dust over it. What what could the new New Zealand look like? Well, you want to wouldn't want to finger sprinkle my finger dust over it, but let's let. But what we want is sprinkled over it is everybody's finger dust. It's got to be a much more cohesive collective view than individual and individual views. But I think also we've just got to be clear that this will take years. It's not suddenly we wake up at the end of twenty twenty and we have a new New Zealand. We've still got to go through the pain of recovery. But while we're doing that, we've got to have this discussion. I think we can come up with a, with, uh, with a society that's wealthier and, and more equitable in that world. I think we can be more cohesive, particularly deal with some of the residual unanswered questions of, of the post-colonial era and the disadvantage of Maori. I think we can deal with some of the issues around why we have so much violence in our society, and I think we can be, and I think we can continue to be economically innovative, in a way that's environmentally sustainable. Now, they're all nice, easy words to say. What it comes down to in reality is collective vision and a commitment by lots of different players to do their bit, and that's why what what. And so why I'm more interested in getting below the big words to the actual actions that will need to happen to get there. And we're doing so in a world which is going to be a little bit, not a little bit, rather uncertain. I mean, what is going to happen in the geostrategic space over the next five years? I mean, the state of the superpowers, China, United States, the European Union, have all been affected in ways that are still playing out as a result of this virus and will be greatly affected by political decisions made outside New Zealand. Will we go into a period of more nationalism, more authoritarianism, uh, of increased trade barriers, of people wanting self-sustainability and therefore more protectionism uh, and subsidies and so forth? 
going back 30 or 40 years in history in that sense, or will it be a time, to, as happened after the Second World War, to look at the international rules-based order to develop institutions for the 21st century that move us towards dealing more effectively with climate change, with poverty, with inequity, etc., etc., etc. That's a big unknown. And New Zealand has to be nimble and be able to find its advantage in whatever scenario plays out and which we don't have a lot of say about how it's going to play out. Yeah. I th the idea of the collective, collective vision is, is critical, right? And when you've got that opportunity to almost like reset the deck with what it looks like, I think there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable challenges within probably more of the government side as well, because if you always look at, you know, how, how the world works in terms of commerce, if you've got, you know, the crazy P Peter Beck entrepreneurs of the world and then the private sector, and then you get the corporates come along, and then finally you have, you know, the cruise ships that are the the government that roll behind it. And, and, and almost this has been an entire equalizer in terms of tech taking absolutely everything to that same spot and then you know i've been i've been talking about these um kind of like holes in the boat of the cloud technology with all these businesses are now going to have after being forced into it and they're like oh shit we need to fix this 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 i'm i, I am i would love to be a fly on the wall at um in some of the um the government or, or these bigger corporate uh, things when it comes to their IT infrastructure, the way they've operated in terms of their, their platforms to actually operate and do business, there's going to be probably many, um, many uncomfortable chats had of, of, of why they need to be able to speed up and actually what they're going to do to execute against it. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think the biggest issue we need now is, and that's why it's almost unfortunate we have an election campaign in the middle of it, which will polarise people into we do it this way or that way. We need we need actually the kind of conversation that we're having now held by lots of different stakeholders to try and find a cohesive collective path forward. Now, not everybody will agree. Never, I mean, that, that's not possible. But there is a way to get a consensus about what New Zealand could be and what needs to happen in the next six months, the next two years, the next five years to get us there. And, you know, and, and, and those are the kinds of discussions. And there's lots of them going on at the present time. Uh, I was, you know, lots of fora. I'm involved in several that are trying to work that through. And what's clear to me is the, the people outside government want that conversation. They want mm -hmm. to see, uh, they don't want it just to be led by a political party. They want it to be a true conversation, not about partisan politics. And yes, everybody will be looking for their position in it. That's the, that's the normal way society operates. Uh, you know, everybody can never, nobody puts, completely puts their own interests outside the door when they walk into a room. But what amazed me in some of the discussions I've been involved in, say, for example, about agriculture, is the willingness of the parties to work together, the absolute recognition that agriculture has to change into a, in sustainability, but also the recognition that agriculture remains at the mainstay of our economy into in the medium to long-term future, equally in discussions in the environmental sector. Everybody wants to use this for an environmental 
reset. The way is, how can we do that, which on one hand might be useful in, in getting more people employed constructively in the near future, but at the same time, how do that feed into, if you like, a new form of tourism, a new form of national identity? So there's lots of things here that have to be connected up. And the discussions are vibrant and healthy and will be ongoing until some sort of uh, something emerges from that, which is some form of national consensus that the major political parties pick up upon. Yeah, on that, you, you're saying this vibrant conversation. I, I was, you know, in, in my world, obviously, we probably, uh, probably different group chats, but in, in mine, there's obviously there's, there's a lot of talk that's happening about, um, you know, roll-ups, and there's a lot of action happening with those that have influence and power. How, how many different, how many secret scroll WhatsApp groups are you in right now with actual chats that are going on? Like, is there like a bunch of heavy-hitting shit that you are just getting pulled into and you're sitting there like what what like how brave is the thinking of of the chatham house chats that you're in like are we are you comf are you comfortable that the chatham house chats that you're in is brave enough and big enough for the wood we want to be in well why not first of all i'm not involved in chatham house hat chats uh, <laughs> so, you so, are. So, you've got everyone on your little you have power well, funny, I, 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 you'll be surprised how little I, 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 I work like that but put that aside I think what we get involved is we put into the public domain. So we report our conversations once we turn them into a report into the public domain. Uh, we get involved. We, we run focus groups and get that report that work out. So, but yes, obviously, all around Wellington, all around Auckland, there's lots of conversations going on, and I think there is this tension between practical, practical, pragmatic what do we do now in the next few months versus what the big vision is? And I, I think if I can use the Christchurch earthquake uh, as sort of a, as a analogy, just to t think about it. what happened in Christchurch with the earthquake was there were people that really wanted to think about a big vision for a new kind of city, a green, smart city, the, mo the, the new city of the 21st century against those who just want to get on with their lives, get their houses rebuilt, get the, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because that earthquake played out with multiple events over multiple months, the, the grand vision never got to the top of the agenda and was always buried in getting on with our lives. And that's understandable. The issue here is because this event is of global proportions, and it's going to impact on every country in the world, on every economy in the world, on every body in some way or another. It's forcing, it will force a reset, which means that you just don't rebuild Christchurch to the way it was before the earthquake. You're looking for a new form of, of Christchurch, a new form of New Zealand. And I think the difficulty will be We've got to, at the same time, as in Christchurch, be rebuilding people's lives. People have to have, uh, and that is a tension. So you've got the pragmatics of the government of the day now having to worry about the economy, how to spend money, how to, how to deal with people who expected to have a job and don't have a job, 
the multitude of small businesses that have lost their uh, that, that cannot survive because they've lost their cash flow etc etc people who will have to be retrained because the tourist industry has got a long long uh, period of downturn on one hand you've got all the practical things have to be done now to deal with people in the unfortunate and sad position they're in and at the same time you've got people saying but this is a unique opportunity to rebuild and reset set mm. and it's how that there is a tension between those two things Tangling, no yeah. not and, and it's how that plays out some of which we can determine for ourselves in individual action some that we can determine collectively through government and some of it will be influenced by what happens around the world. And we've just got to be nimble, smart, innovative, and look for the for the the phoenix that can rise out of the ashes. And what is that? And be positive that we can do it, but at the same time not forget the fact there are hundreds of thousands of people in New Zealand for whom the next few months or years are gonna be very, very, very difficult and that's the day that's the dilemma that we're in it's easy for people to speculate about new zealand as the greenest place on the planet etc etc but we've got to do it in the context of how we keep keep hundreds of thousands of people uh thriving in very difficult circumstances heavy lies the crown <laughs> no, that's the pragmatic problem yeah. of government. This is just the pragmatism of idealism Reality. in one place. And we all want to be idealistic for a vision. But at the same time, there's the pragmatic reality of what's going on on the ground that has to be dealt with. Hmm. Um, Richie says, uh, good chat. What do you believe to be realistic international travel health passport option, uh, particularly New Zealand, Australia, New Zealand over the next 12 months and beyond? And also probably the islands, I'm imagining. But yeah. Well, I mean, my own view is that all going well, Australia and New Zealand appear with slightly different strategies to be moving to a position where they've got COVID under control. If you've got COVID really under control, really under control, and you're dealing with just the occasional case, just like the occasional case of malaria cropped up in New Zealand from a traveler coming back from overseas or dengue fever or something like that, you could open the borders between Australia and New Zealand without quarantine quite quickly. If they, if they agree on a common standard for what happens across beyond the Australasian, possibly Pacifica border. And certainly from the tourism industry, and from many families' point, personal points of view, that is quite realistic. Uh, are there other countries that might get into that position? Maybe. Maybe Singapore will get there, although they're having some struggles at the moment. Maybe Hong Kong can get there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there may be an expanding envelope of countries that have got COVID-19 to be nothing more than a sporadic infectious disease that crops up like malaria, well, in New Zealand, we don't transmit it from person to person, but uh, something like tuberculosis. We can manage it without, um, without having to have uh, barriers between countries. Whether or not the antibodies that everybody's talking about 
actually show you've got immunity or not, we don't know. Mm. And I think until that happens, I would like to hope they would, but there's some doubts in, about a number of the tests that are there now. Uh, and until they're validated, and that might allow a few more people to travel longer distances without quarantine. Or it may be that we're stuck until we have a yellow, the equivalent of the yellow viva vaccination. You know, those of us who go to Africa or South America have to have that yellow booklet with showing you've had a yellow fever vaccination. Uh, maybe that will come, but I think the vaccine's further away than people realise. Yeah. I think the other thing is we don't know how this virus is going to play out. It, whether or not it stays as a recurrent severe infection over the long term or not, it's something that we don't know yet. So there's unknowns there, but I think in response to the question, I would be optimistic that as long as Australia and New Zealand stay on the common on, on a path which has similarities, they're not identical, we might within a few months be able to open up the 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 border between the two countries without quarantine being required. Mm. And I'm sure if that, that happened by if that could happen by June or July, a bunch of Australian tourists could come back into Queenstown. I'm sure that'd be um, that'd be potentially like uh, Ben Rose. Some of the ethnic divisions among coronavirus victims overseas are very interesting. What do you believe is behind the wildly different transmission and mortality rates we are witnessing in countries like UK and US? Distinguish well, transmission and mortality. I think in mortality, uh, a lot of it relates to the underlying. Well, sorry, let me start that one again. First of all, I think we, we don't fully understand what's going on. There's some evidence of viral uh, mutation leading to different strains, but the evidence is very weak and remote. Certainly this is a mutating virus. Like other RNA mutating RNA viruses, it mutates quite a lot. And that might play into the um, transmissibility of the virus and its infectivity and how severe a disease it, it forms. There is at least one Chinese reputable scientist who believes that the strain is having an effect on the severity. That's possible. And the second is viral load seems to be very important. In other words, how much virus do you transmit to another person and how much do they receive? One of the reasons healthcare workers in, North, in the Northern Hemisphere have, have had such a high morbidity and mortality rate is they've been exposed probably to lots of viral load from different people. There is some evidence, again weak, that suggests that temperature and humidity play a role in how, how much the virus, how, how much of a viral load is transmitted. So um, in colder, wetter, climate, it appears to be more virus in the droplet and more virus and it survives longer in the droplet. So so that that probably take, plays a role. My bias is that those two things, and particularly the, the, the viral transmission due to weather has had more of an effect than we realise. There are other reasons why weather might have an effect. For instance, we tend to cluster more with each other etc etc and our, our hygiene might be a bit different and we also have lots more comorbidity in winter coughs colds 
from other sources. Air pollution may have played a big role in some places in turning to, to covert lung disease that made those people more susceptible. Uh, uh, China's well known for having a lot of air pollution in its big cities. Uh, bits of Italy that were where there's a lot of transmission were, were, were there. So there's, there's a lot here to explain it. And we can also explain in New Zealand, conversely, why we've been so lucky. We have had basically the people who brought the virus into New Zealand have been young, healthy people who tend to buy without symptoms or very mild symptoms. And there does seem to be a relationship between symptoms and viral load. So just less virus came into New Zealand. Secondly, we were in summer and that may, and a dry summer at that, and that may have helped. Thirdly, um, we, we got on top of it early. And whereas we left it to circulate in Northern hemisphere countries for a long time before serious measures were put in place. And therefore, there may be other aspects to the spread. Now, I'm being very speculative here. Really, I think it's one of the big unknowns, which we've got to understand yet. Why is it that the mortality rate in New Zealand and Australia and South Africa, relative to the number of infections, is much, much lower? The severity of the illness in general seems to be lower. I think... We've got hints at it, but we don't really know yet. Yeah, I'm wondering if you flipped it the other way and if New York got hit in the middle of winter, if this was true with what you're saying with the droplets being um, denser or lasting longer, it'd be a flipping gong show. Uh, we've got uh, Fatima Bar says, uh, Sir Peter, great to... Does it, just, does it sound weird when people call you Sir Peter? It's so dope. Is it just like, it Sir Peter? When I, I mean, it used to when I, when I first got it, both myself and my wife were terribly embarrassed. After decade, after more than a decade, you just get used to it. And uh, the funniest ones are the airlines when they call you Sir Gluckman. And that, well, I guess I won't be on an airline for a while, so I don't, won't face that again. It just must be so know, weird. It's crazy. Funny, weird. Uh, I won't say I don't like it. I mean, it, it, it's nice. And I'd be lying to say I like. I don't like it. Uh, but you know, it's a, it's it, it's a strange thing. I mean, it's so it's so weird. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, but and then when they call you like the first time, it's like Sir Peter. How would you like your coffee? Well, funny you ask. Thanks, Rog. <laughs> it's just like sir. It's so weird, and and get to say like, and you'll sign off and shit. Be like. Sir Peter, it's like just stamp that shit. It's so dope. Um, anyway, he says sorry. Back to the question. We digress. Sir Peter, great to hear from you. Quick question: What are your thoughts about the consequences of COVID nineteen on our health system going forward? Should uh, we be more focused on building our medical systems and data capability slash inner operability? Don't know what that means, but it sounds like it's stuff well i think there's a whole lot of things in that question and they're quite important first of all what is clear is we have a complex healthcare, even though it's a very good healthcare system in and dealing under routine circumstances what i think this highlighted is the need for some form of proper public health system uh i think a health intelligence operation which looks at data separate from management would be very useful. I think uh, something like the old Public Health Commission clearly had value uh, and 
we need to rethink about the importance of how we promote public health. In terms of the healthcare system itself, the hospitals and the primary care system, there already was a review underway uh, well before this, this started of the number of DHBs we have, the way they operate, the relationship to ACC, uh, uh, the, um, the way primary care operates. And one of the things that come out of that, as I understand it, and I certainly implied in the question that was put to me, is the importance of getting our data interoperability right. So we actually understand what's going on. I think we have still in New Zealand to get a proper data oversight and government system for all of government. I've been on about this for several years. I served on the OECD committee about these matters. That in fact, if the government is going to have a lot of access to people's data, how it's used needs to be subject to independent oversight. And that's that, but that and other countries have done that. There need to be standards, there need to be uh, 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 guidelines, there need to be processes beyond just what the Privacy Commissioner can offer around privacy. So I think that, yes, we had a golden age starting on using data to do better about managing people's health. Or, or addressing their issues in education or in, a, in lots of other areas. But let's make sure that we do so in a way which is compatible and acceptable with people's views of their autonomy and agency. You know, you brought up the, the idea of, um, you know, we're talking about medical data records, transparency, a collective vision, which is obviously still people's opinions and stuff. It really feels like, at least on those two, there's some type of, um, macro level digital or tech solution to be able to attack both, I'm sure. Uh, Maureen Crampton says, uh, I don't, you go, do you want to say something? No, look, I think there are tech solutions, but those tech solutions need to be subject to oversight and interrogation mm -hmm. to public, so everybody has confidence in them. Yeah. And, and I mean, I wrote, you know, there, there's a lot to do there, which is easy to do. But it's, it's, it's giving the, the public an assurances on these matters in ways that we do not have institutional protection for in New Zealand yet. Hmm. Uh, Maureen Crampton says, I can see why they call you sir. You've got a flippin' brain, man. You've got a good way to deconstruct it. It's cool. Um, we have many references, uh, Maureen Crampton says, uh, we have many references in modern times where devastating natural disasters in impoverished areas see the total loss of uh, the little they had. Those who ultimately do better gather up, get organ organized and start rebuilding their lives without waiting. As you've shared, Sir Peter, many Maori groups are currently doing this by mobilizing resources for communities. How do we get the value in that self-determination message to broaden New Zealand? Good question, Maureen. I think it's a fabulous question. I mean, I think if you got on something like Rangi Mari Ehunia or something like that on yeah. your program and lots of other programs, and you heard this remarkable uh, collective spirit that's within iwi. Uh, they may not have much resources, but they were rapid to get their own pandemic management plans in place. They thought about it. They thought about their, I mean, I'm just impressed beyond belief with, and I don't know a lot. I mean, what I know is restricted to a, a limited number of, of, of iwi. 
but I am so impressed by the that the, how they have operated to really look after their 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 people and their whanau in a remarkable way, and just get on with it. And I think that's that's important. And I think there's a lot that we could learn as Pākehā from the way they have done so. Mm. Uh, Anthony Hawke says, collective well-being, uh, gambling products, oh, here we go, shit, this might might not answer this one. Uh, gambling products generate significant amount of dollars for community groups. Poker machines alone generate around 900 million-ish from some of our most at-risk communities, for which 300 million goes back into community groups. How are we going to be able to balance the funding needs of our community and sports groups against the need to keep that dollars in communities that need it most? Will collective well-being be at the detriment of localised Localized unwellness from Anthony Hawke. Oh, going deep there, mate. You want to take a crack at that one? Well, I think that's one of the moral issues that society has as a whole and gambling in different ways, uh, uh, particularly gambling that takes lots of money from people who can't afford it in the hope of that being that one in a zillion chance of making it big is a sad, sad thing. But you could add the misuse of alcohol, uh, which uh, tobacco, uh, lots of other things around, which and and perhaps soon marijuana, into this class of things where we balance uh, some level of autonomy to do things that are not entirely which may be harmful, against living in a state which determines your behaviour, and. Different societies have got to different positions on that. Uh, I think that uh, if the rationale for allowing these activities to happen at scale is about revenue, that's unfortunate. I think that there's a different, I mean, and so I think, I mean, I have a worldview, a personal view about this stuff, which others may not agree with, which is I think that we are far too liberal about alcohol. We're far too liberal about tobacco, and and we and I think gambling is out of control. I think we have allowed gambling to get to the point of um, uh, of aspiration, which is unrealistic. And so, I think that, but that's my view as an individual. I think how society judges the amount of autonomy they want to give people, even at the risk of them harming themselves. Uh, as opposed to being told by the state what they should or should not do, is one of the big worldview issues that we talked about earlier. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big one, eh? So would you? Okay, so you've got booze. Science can't solve different worldviews. I mean, yeah. I can't solve that as a scientist. No, I, I have a worldview. You have a worldview. The other four and a half million New Zealanders have, each have worldviews. Politics tries to find a way through that. But uh, uh, I think these are really, these are issues beyond science. Yeah. So if you were, um, so go, so booze, gambling, smoking, you're saying bad, bad, bad. What would you change around booze in New Zealand if you could change a law or make a law? Well, number one is I would stop uh, the sale of Algapops and these things that are, are really overindulgent. I would look to how we explain. I would probably raise the age back to 21. I know some of you. Big call. Big call. Uh, 
big goal, big goal. But I'd certainly be looking to much more reflection on the culture of drinking we have. We have a very boozy uh, culture. It's great to go out and get slammed. Uh, there's a really interesting study from Iceland, and Iceland, of course, is a very different country to New Zealand. But but if you go back 30 years, and they do the survey regularly, they do a survey of 15 to 16-year-olds and ask how many have got blind drunk in the last 30 days. So how many have wiped themselves out with booze in yep. the last 30 days? 30 years ago, it was about 58% of 15 to 16-year-olds said that they get wiped out by booze. Now it's down to less than 8%. Hmm. And at the same time, the use of drugs and marijuana has fallen in parallel. Now, Iceland's very different. Everybody's related to each other. It's only 300,000 people. It's a relatively homogeneous society. What they did is they went out and talked to the young people to understand why they were getting drunk, why they were blinding themselves uh, in such a stupid way, putting themselves into... And they found the kids wanted other wanted other things. So the, they went out and with the kids co-designed what, what they wanted. I mean, it's not a mark of being grown up to go out and wipe yourselves out, although New Zealand seems to think that's part of its culture. It's a mark of being bored. It's a mark of wanting to escape in a way that I think can be achieved. Social connectivity can be achieved in other ways. So and what so they I want? They, well, they like wanted sport groups. They wanted uh, pinball machines. They wanted lots of other things. But they activities. wanted... Ways of activities that just didn't know what are we going to do? Let's sit around and get and blast ourselves, wipe ourselves out. So there's, I think, the issue for New Zealand is a cultural one. Um, of we've got, you know, it goes back a long way to the six o'clock swill uh, of my youth, where the pub shut at six o'clock. So we really went in at five o'clock and got blind drunk. How much beer you could drink in an hour? Uh, it, you know, it's not a, a new phenomenon. This is a deeply there's yeah, something very about yeah. drinking drinking to excess in New Zealand, which other cultures don't have. They, you know, you go to France, you go to many other cultures, you don't see it like this. So there's a cultural issue which doesn't have to exist like this. And, and I think we need to. I mean, this is these are some of the harder questions mm. we need to think about as a society. Uh, just like we have to think about why is it that Maori still feel angry and, and many of them dispossessed. These are the kinds of, why do we have so much family violence? These are the kinds of deeper issues it's we're not deeper, very good right? in the country as discussing. Topic, topics and issues, and I think even with a situation like this, it's very much brought to the forefront a whole bunch of uncomfortable conversations either around mental health or finances or personal relationships or society, right? Like it, there's, it's forcing a lot of tough conversations both in and out of business i feel well i think it i think it is and we saw that start after the christchurch massacres where there was a lot of discussion about what did that mean for new zealand's view of multiculturalism and biculturalism and there was a wave of enthusiasm in those discussions for a while that drifted off perhaps uh, i think now given the magnitude of the event that we're facing in terms of economic and social disturbance, 
it would it's very healthy that this kind of conversation starts again mm. and that yeah, nobody has the repository of all these solutions. The solutions could come from very diverse parts of society, not from necessarily from intellectuals or academics, but mm. or, or business leaders. They can come from many people of many ages, and I think that's why conversation of the kind that you're leading now and conversations that I lead in different ways are really important because out of those conversations will come ways to move ahead. Mm. So booze potentially up to twenty one. No, no wasted Friday mega sessions. Smoking, just kill it, right? Or just chuck up tax to like a hundred percent. What do you do? Well, I think smoking is the interesting issue that we have done well with most of the population, but there are sectors of the population that are not are not responding well. We obviously have a black market. We've seen the dairy violence that's come as taxation gets too high. And I think we come back to uh, issues that are actually, this will sound idealistic or, or, or utopian, but we come back to the role of the education system. Now, not the education system as we know it now, but Richie Poulton, who I suggest you get on your show one day, uh, and myself think a lot about the issues of emotional self-regulation. Because actually the use of tobacco, alcohol, in excess, et cetera, et cetera, are all issues of self-regulation. And we know a lot about how self-regulation developed. It's starting, it, it's really built in the first few years of life. It's then reinforced as you go through childhood and adolescence. We know how to improve emotional self-regulation. We know a lot about that. We don't use our educational system to do that well. We uh, and, and you know we don't focus in New Zealand, for instance, on early childhood education from the point of view of it achieving what is needed for the child's development. We focus on it largely as a babysitting service or to prepare the child for uh, to read and write, which are the least important skills to learn when you're two, three, four, five years four years of age. And so we need to be, and, and there's a lot of evidence that we could do a lot more uh, with a reset in our education system to prepare our young people for the world they're gonna live in, which is a very different world. Mm. Uh, the issues, we know that the skill sets that will be needed by the children of today are not those of learning by rote an infinite number of facts, which are soon out of date anyhow. Uh, what they need to learn is critical thinking. They need to learn empathy. They need to learn about emotional self-regulation. They need to be a resist resilient to, to rapid change, which is going to be inevitable in their lifetime. And these are all things that are built upon by the appropriate ways of early childhood and childhood education. We know a lot about that, but we still persist in an education system that is built on what parents expect from what they were educated in uh, 50 years ago or 40 years ago, which is, you know, remembering Newton's uh, laws of mechanics or, 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 or the second law of thermodynamics. And don't ask me as the chief science advisor to recite them to you. Just ask Siri, um, mate, be fine. I mean, you just go and look that up on Google. What you do need to know is 
uh, one of the critical skills to look up on a website what is and get a sense of whether it's more likely to be reliable or non-reliable information. Mm. We need to be able to work with other people. We need to be learn how to work in teams. We need how to understand that our collective knowledge is better than our individual knowledge. There's a whole lot of things that the young people of today will need to thrive in the world of rapid change ahead of them. And the education system needs to respect that. And from what we know around drugs and alcohol, emotional self-regulation and emotional resilience are the most important protections against its misuse. Hmm. And what about the, the last one of um, gambling? Kill the pokies? Double down? I hadn't really thought about it in, in, in great much depth, but I mean, if they are pokies, I mean, if you can get fun and enjoyment from trivial pinball type activities, that's fine. But if it's, if it's money that's being put, if it's, and if you can do it with matchsticks, that's fine. But I mean, I do worry about the people who are being forced into this false nirvana of sitting there and putting money in machines in the hope that something large happens for them. And as we know, it never happens for most of them. Well, that was the thing Amber was saying. I saw something very sad the other day at the bookshop where a woman was just scratching the one box on a huge pile of freshly purchased scratchy tickets and checking them herself at the scanner. I spoke to her and she said, oh, I'm just trying to make some money. That's heartbreaking. It's um, terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, finally, before we go, weed. Let's talk about the marijuana. Legalize, yes or no? Why? Mega spliffs or back to jail? Where, where, where do you sit? I think this is a really interesting issue of harm reduction. Let me just take you through it because it's this is not black and white. We know that marijuana for some people causes psychiatric illness or uh, significantly, either an apathy syndrome or a, um, a psychotic type syndrome. And we also know that tends to be more likely in young people, it's more likely in heavy users, but it's particularly, but the psychotic reactions can occur even in non-heavy users on one side. On the other side, we have a large underbelly of people who are effectively engaged in illegal activity because of marijuana, and we're teaching it as a, and we're treating it as a crime, and with all the things that it does to their lives when it's blighted. So let's ask two deep questions. Why is it that we have a society where we need another mind-altering drug? Why do we need it? Why do we have a society that needs it? And secondly, if we made marijuana a legal business, would that actually stop the people that are engaged in a legal business doing a legal business, or they go to some other antisocial activity? And thirdly, if the people are doing this antisocial business are doing it because they've got nothing else to do in their lives, their lives are blighted in some way, Shouldn't we be focusing on the issues of intergenerational disadvantage, 
poverty, inequity that lead to those people seeing that their choice ahead is in those areas. So that's the background of a very difficult discussion. As an ex-pediatrician, I would prefer not to see marijuana there. As a humanist, I don't believe we should be treating marijuana as a crime, provided that we actually think about the health aspects of it, and provided that we actually look to those communities that have regarded the illegal marijuana business as their, as their only way of making a living, and we address those issues. So if you want my answer, I have no bloody idea how I'm going to vote <laughs> in, in, in September well, because I'm weighing up those two issues in my mind. I would rather that we were not addressing the issue this year because I think in the middle of this crisis, this is not a very good beat very healthy time to have this discussion. It's a deep one. I think you cannot look at this issue of marijuana without thinking about the other health impacts of other drugs like methamphetamine. I don't think you can look at, I mean, I still come back to this question. Why does Western society need another mind altering drug? Why, why do we need it? What is it about our society that says we need it? Uh, now that's a very deep question. No, no, no. And I, I get it. I, I think the the um, I, if I split it, I think it goes into two camps, right? The one is you know health and wealth, similar to, to COVID. That the yeah. health side of there is a huge amount of of data and fact going to the support of um, medical use for it for a whole bunch of different reasons. That's probably separate to recreation, right? So totally separate issue. Totally different issue. Put totally. that aside. So, so if it was that, then you'd be like, okay, cool. Uh, yes to medicinal, potentially, potentially no, just to recreational. But then you flip the other side of exactly to your point, is then you go, okay, well, let's talk about the wealth of it. All right, you know, if you look at Colorado with the taxes that are coming, you look at all these different things. Simultaneously, if you take the mindset of the intellect of a lot of those in the ecosystem that are running that world of of of, of illegal activity. The reality is it's not that they will then stop doing illegal activity. They will look for another illegal thing to do. So then exactly to your point is like, okay, well, do I, do I make, you know, I would have got as a, if I was a government, would I rather have, you know, someone putting, uh, you know, say it's illegal, but you know, they're going to make the hundred grand or they shift to flipping meth and heroin and whatever else it goes up to. And then the health system then costs us a million dollars a person, right? Cause I'm sure that's got to be a balance off of, commerce versus community in, the, in this type of thing. So the, the wealth thing is quite interesting because I, I would be really intrigued to ask, you know, 10 different drug dealers, if we if we got legalized, what would you do specifically? And I, and I think you'd probably be scared at the answer. I don't think it goes safer. I think it probably goes the other way. <laughs> I, my I just, just, my just gut a, feel too. Just a feeling. <laughs> my feeling too. I don't know the answer, but I think it's a very difficult issue that has been reduced to yeah i like to have you know i want to have my opportunity to have marijuana uh therefore everybody should have it without thinking through this very complex sort of equation that's there and it needs a bit more reflection and i'm not sure mm. i'm not sure we're ready for it in this particular context of this year mm. um We've gone way over the time of what I think we'd both planned on this, but I have been hyped at the intellectual stimulation that I've had when it comes to all of this. 
this this tension and intersection between government and politics and councils and corporates and culture and all this other shit. On top of all that, I think it's Sir Peter. This has been a bloody pleasure, Sir Peter. Thank you for your time, Sir Peter. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. And I think this kind of conversation you're leading, more of it is needed. I think it's really the way to go ahead here is to have different groups, different audiences, different age groups really engage in this serious conversation. It's it's going to make a real difference. So keep on with it. No, I appreciate it. And literally when we'd started this on, we started the day before we went into lockdown was I knew that I had crew in my network who had uh, intel and insight to have conversations that weren't being had. And I also then knew that people would be home in isolation spots without networks to do it. So all I was thinking is stuff it. I'll leverage my Rolodex and be like, yo, let's have banter, talk shit, do our thing. And then plant lots of seeds of different like ideas and ways of thinking so you know they get access to those that can't um into different worlds and different ways of thought so i really appreciate your time i'm not going to continue with all the different crazy words and numbers and names at the end of your thing sir peter gluckman the man thanks brother i'll see you soon see you later bye peace what a flipping boss it's like we're going to get a, a slow golf clap for that one It's interesting to see how he breaks it down from either side because you can totally you can totally see it you can totally get it. Um, the complexity of when you're balancing health versus wealth, right? It's something that um, I think everyone is at right now, and even just understanding the other side of what people are thinking through. Uh, that was very very awesome. That was very very cool. Uh, if you don't know now, you know that was Sir Peter um, Gluckman, first Sir. We've had world class New Zealanders, and now we're gone straight to like we've gone CEOs. World class New Zealanders, <laughs> flipping sir, <laughs> just drop the flipping hammer. All right, does anyone know a dame? They need to be up next. If someone knows a dame, hit me up. Let's get them on the show. Dame, whoever, we've got sir. It's only it's only right that we we share the love. Any dames are welcome. See you soon, team. Peace.